Well, we are in uh, part four of the art of spiritual warfare. And over these last couple of weeks, uh, we've been confronted uh, with the reality that we are inundated with war. War is in front of us, war is behind us, war is above us, war is below us. And as we're going to discover as we get further into this, war is even inside of us. It is inside our hearts. It is inside our minds. Uh, we find that war is very much the reality. Well, today I want to open up with a statement from the Apostle Paul expressing this reality. And uh, if you study the Apostle Paul, if you read his writings, one thing you discover very quickly is Paul does address the topic of war. And he does it in an extremely intense matter, in a very informative matter for us to, to impart to us the power of God. So let's look at this, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We do not war according to the flesh. And obviously the first thing to note here is, guess what? Paul lets us know, we in the plural, we are at war. Believers in Yeshua were at war. Make the note, identify it. But that's not all. He goes on to reveal something about this war. What this war really looks like. This is not a physical war. This is not a war being fought with tanks and bombs and guns and laser-guided missiles. The Iron Dome. Or we take this back into Paul's context, right? Into the first century historical context. This is not being fought with shields and with swords and with bows. This is spiritual. The context of this war is spiritual. Of which he goes on to say in verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. In other words, they're not flesh. They are not of this earth, right? But mighty in God... We're pulling down strongholds. The weapons that Paul is talking about here, they are mighty in God. He has my attention. They are mighty in God. For what? Pulling down strongholds. I want to take you to the Greek because I really want to dig into this uh, to help you appreciate what the Corinthians understood when Paul used this imagery. If we go to the Greek on this, it's Ohuroma. Ohuroma in the Greek, and it literally means a fortified military stronghold. This is what he is referring to, a strong wall fortress. So Paul is telling, he is likening the attacks of Hasatan coming against us to fortified military forces. Fortresses, mind you, that have been erected against you. They have been erected for one reason, to bring you to desolation. If you think about, let me, let me, let's just put this into uh, context, going back to Paul's day to help you appreciate this. When Rome went in and destroyed Jerusalem, burned it to the ground, they looted the temple, they destroyed the temple. You know they didn't do it just in a day. Vespasian went back off, Titus came in, finished the job. Titus just didn't say, okay, let's just do this. There was planning involved. And do you know that Rome actually set up strongholds all around the city? They surrounded the city. And what happened? Jerusalem fell. The enemy had encamped around her, had put all these strongholds, and it was through these strongholds that it fell. 
Let me stay in the same, same time frame. Just go a couple years after the fall of Jerusalem, there was another war known as the Masada War, where all the Jewish zealots, they, they fled to Masada. They had had enough of Rome. They fled to Masada, and Masada was extreme. It was the premier place to be to defend because of its sheer height and its sheer walls. It was an awesome military fortress to, to be at. It was your position. It is the primary military position you want to be in. Well, guess what happened after Rome got done with Jerusalem? Just a couple years later, they went into Masada. And how did they take something that is completely looks impossible? How did they take it? They built strongholds. They built eight strongholds around Masada. And they built this huge ramp and Masada fell because of the strongholds. This is exactly what Paul is trying to convey to us. He is trying to convey the reality and the power of these strongholds and the power of the weapons of God. You want to put these weapons of the Lord in context? Understand how great they really are. And think about the strongholds in your life that the enemy puts up against you. Fear, doubt, sexual immorality. You have idolatry and covetousness, all the various lusts of the world, pride, you better recognize that he is erecting strongholds around you for a reason. He's coming for you. He is coming to bring you to desolation. And this is the context that you need to understand so that you and you, when Paul starts talking about the weapons of the living God, your ears need to perk up because your life depends on it. The next question is, where do we get these weapons because I want to be able to defend myself. I want to be able to take these strongholds down that the enemy comes against to bring me to desolation. Where do I get them and what are they? Well, fortunately for us, Paul tells us what they are. Going to Ephesians 6, chapter 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. I love how he kicks this off. Specifically saying he's commending us to be strong. We are to be strong in the Lord in the power of His might. How many of you want to move in the power of His might? I mean, for us believers in Yeshua, that should send chills down your spine. It's everything for us to be able to move. I mean, we fantasize about it. Believers in Yeshua fantasize, they should, fantasize about moving in the power of God in their life. Well, look at what Paul says. Be strong in the Lord and the power is mine. How do we move in this power? He tells us in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God. That's how we move in the power of His might. We are to put on the whole armor. Not some, not partial. All of it. For what purpose? Well, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And that word wiles in the Greek is methodea. It's where we get the term method. That we may be able to stand against the methods of Satan, his modus operandi, how he moves, his military strategy against us. This is how we will stand. When you build strongholds around it, what happens to the city? It falls. Paul is telling us through these weapons, we will be made to stand. Going to verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now going back, what did he say in 2 Corinthians 10? The exact same thing. The war is spiritual. 
And, our, and so he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. This war is as intense and as intimate as it could possibly get. This is hand-to-hand combat. When the enemy is engaging you, he is actually coming to you personally. You might say, well, Daniel, I really don't want to participate in this war. I'd like to sit this one out. Not really a soldier. I'm going to tell you something. You do not have a choice. So in the interest of self-preservation, you might want to get armed. You might want to get equipped. You might get ready for war because you will go toe-to-toe with the enemy. And if you don't think you're at war, then I'm really scared for you. You need to send some scouts out to start looking in your heart and in your mind and in your life for strongholds that are being erected that you don't see because they're being erected to bring you to desolation. Verse 13, Take up, therefore... Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. You want to prevail? You are going to need to be armed to the teeth. Our adversary could not be a scarier scenario. You need to be armed to the teeth. And if you're not armed, you are exposed. And you will fall. This is serious. This is as serious as it gets. There's a reason the Apostle Paul is imparting this information. Now he continues uh, to go on to tell us what these weapons are. This is where we really want to zero in and pay close attention. Verse 14. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And then actually goes on in verse 17 to list two more things. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. When you look at these lists of weapons that Paul has compiled here, the armor listed, did you notice? It's literally from head to toe. In other words, in in the sense of coverage. Every aspect of the person he's identifying that would bear this stuff is literally equipped head to toe. He is ready to go to war. He is ready to do battle against a spiritual host of wickedness, against demonic forces coming in his life, against the lust of the flesh. He is ready. Now, in this list, I do want to draw your attention to something specific. There's one particular item here that's given preeminence over all the other items one item paul elevates it stands out and where it is we find this is in verse 16 i'll highlight this above all grab your attention he says above all okay we go through the list but focus on this above all taking the shield of faith and look at what he says with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Put that into context. Everything that Hasatan can throw at you, everything he has in his arsenal can be dispelled through the shield. Through the shield of faith. Through your faith in Yeshua it can be dispelled. Think of how powerful a weapon the shield of faith really is. 
You know, when you study the history of war, and you go back to the days of Paul, one of the things that you realize is the use of bow, the bow and arrow, the use of archers in war. Archery and and the use of it was very, very effective tool in warfare. It allowed you to fight from a distance. And when when your arrow hit the mark, it was a kill shot. I want you to think about something. Even the kings of Israel fell in this manner. You think of Saul. Why was he wounded with a, with a fatal wound? He was shot by the archers. Think of King Josiah. King Josiah died because the archer hit his mark. That arrow hit its mark. And the use of archery, so the use of archery is very, very effective tool in war for centuries after centuries. And the people would light up the skies. They would light these things on fire and just wreak havoc on your camp, burning your, your tents down. And then even scarier than that is at night they would send these things, this barrage of arrows at night. You wouldn't see anything. They'd just start hitting. And all you would hear is the whistles that they would make. And they'd start coming in at 100 miles an hour into the camp. It's a very, very effective tool in war. My question is, well, how do you defend yourself against such a tool? Well, the answer to that is right here. The answer to the arrows is the shield of faith. Let me further help you appreciate the imagery that Paul is utilizing here, the importance of faith in battle. If you go back to around the 5th century B.C., there was a group of men who existed in that day, and they are considered even by standards of military elite forces today, men who study the history of the elite forces, they are considered today the most elite force that ever has walked on planet Earth. And who are these men? They are known as the Spartans. Has anybody heard of the Spartans? Most of us have. We even name universities uh, in this manner. We utilize this uh, terminology. Um, they're also known as hoplites. And that'll be significant. That's germane as, as we continue. But to truly help you appreciate the Spartan, you need to understand Spartan society. Because their culture, their government, everything, every aspect of it had one primary function, to construct the most deadly warriors in the world. Their entire government, this was not a typical Greek government where you think Athens, you think democracy and all that. That's not Sparta. Sparta set itself apart from your typical Greece uh, democracy or government. Sparta was more of a socialistic oligarchy type of uh, thing going on because at seven years old, they would come and take your male child away from the mother. And that male child immediately went into training for war. And there's all these interesting adages uh, uh, that are are said about the Spartans. Um, I'll just give you an example. One person came up to a Spartan and said, you have no walls around Sparta. How come Sparta has no walls? You're completely defenseless. And and the response is, is, oh, make no mistake. We are protected by the tips of our spears of our warriors. Those are our walls. And so these men were revered. Men who, just to kind of give you an idea, 45,000 took on 200,000 men. I mean, this was an elite fighting force, to say the least. 
They were trained in hand-to-hand combat better than anyone. In fact, they were experts in what we would call now mixed martial arts. Mixed this, this, mixed martial arts. And it's even funny that the Olympic Games would happen. You know, the Greeks, they loved their Olympics. Well, even in this time, there was their, their Olympic Games. What is interesting is they have this mixed martial arts and they would compete in this particular kind of mixed martial arts. The only rule was is no Spartan could compete because they were killers. They were trained killers. They knew if they allowed a Spartan into there, they were going to kill their opponent. The opponent doesn't have a chance. This just kind of give you an idea of how well trained, how formidable these individuals really were. You didn't just roll into Sparta and start up a war. You're dead. That would be death to yourself. Well, I want to talk about, and, and this, is, this all pertains to what Paul just went through. When you look at the attire of a Spartan, they were known for their attire. They were known for their, their helmets. Very, very intimidating in war. Very scary looking. When you see 30,000, 40,000 of these helmets coming at you, it's intimidating. You look at the spear. They were known for their very, very long spear. But the thing that they were most known for, the thing that they were most known for, interestingly enough, was in fact their sword, or their um, shield. Their shield was the most prominent piece of armor they bore. It was the most revered. And, and, and there's, a, there's a saying that when, when Spartans would go out to war, they would be told, men of Sparta, bring back the shield. You either be carrying it, or may your brothers carry you on it. It's indicating you fell in war. The shield in their society and their culture was revered. And I want you to understand something. There is good reason for this. Their shield wasn't something that just they, that they utilized to defend themselves. Their shields operated on a whole other level. They had something what is known as, when they would gather together for war, they had something known as a phalanx. And in this phalanx, the Spartans would stand shoulder to shoulder with each other, and their, sword, their, their, their uh, shields would come in, their spears would come on top. But what was interesting about their shields, they were very large. They would interlock their shields together, and they would literally build this army that is a, a, a total, that it's total, it's this armor-bearing tank-looking thing when you get men all moving at the same time, moving in perfect unison. And so they would interlock their shields. And so here's why it was so revered. The shield wasn't just about them. It was about protecting the guy next to them. It played a role in defending your brother who stood next to you. And your brother who stood next to you, his shield protected the guy next to him. And so on and so forth. And so this shield was more revered than anything. Exactly what Paul is telling us. Above all, take the shield of faith. And here we find in the Spartans it was the most revered thing, but because it protected their brother. It was not just about themselves. And where am I going with this? This is exactly how it's supposed to operate in the church. Our shield of faith has such great power that we can defend our brother. If someone were to fall in battle, they would come together and immediately build a wall of shields interlocking them, defending their comrade who fell. This is the exact same way. This is the power of the shield of faith. Let me give you a biblical example of this. In Mark chapter 2, and again, Yeshua entered Capernaum 
after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately men gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, nor even near the door. I mean, this is packed. You can't even get to the house. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. I want you to look at this because this is all about war. This is about warfare. They had a fallen comrade that could not present himself to Yeshua. He couldn't physically do it. And what happens? His soldiers next to him, men of faith, took up their shields of faith, they interlocked them, and they made their way to go see Yeshua. They know if they get before Yeshua, there will be victory. There will be victory. And we move on to verse 4. And when they could not come near Yeshua because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, I love this terminology, they broke through. Let me tell you something. When you get together and you interlock your shields of faith as men and women of God, you will break through lines that cannot be broken. You will break through battlefield lines. It's powerful. And so here these men, with their faith, they break through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying, and Yeshua saw their faith. When he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. This is the power of faith. This is the awesome power of faith. These men knew. They acted in faith. They came together as a perfect unit. They lifted this man up and they brought him to Yeshua. Faith, I'm going to tell you something. Faith is going to lead the charge in war. And it is faith that will gain you the victory. Faith in Yeshua. And what's interesting, you go back to the Spartans... The way they utilized their shield, it wasn't just a defense mechanism. It was a scary bashing event. It was, they, were, they were coated in bronze. And when you went up against a Spartan, who they were extremely fit, extremely strong. It wouldn't just serve as protection, but it was served to bust through, to break through, and to bash their opponents. And it literally dropped them. That's the, that is the power of the shield of faith, to drop our enemy, to break through the lines. We can do this, but it's through faith in Yeshua. Let me take you to James chapter 5, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders in church. These are supposed to be the men that are equipped for war, head to toe, they're ready to go. And they understand the value of faith in Yeshua. They know how to use the shield. Call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Understand something. This is exactly what we just read in Mark chapter 2. Other men are coming on behalf of their fallen comrade. And they bind their shields of faith together. And they bring them into the presence of Yeshua. That's powerful. That, you think of that in war, and a war sense. That is the most powerful concept. No wonder Paul says, above all, take the shield of faith. And let me tell you something. As a believer in Yeshua, being at war, you better believe I'm not going to surround myself 
by a bunch of ninnies, by mamby-pamby guys that don't have a true relationship with the Lord, that are not armed to the teeth. No Spartan would ever go to war with a guy that doesn't know how to fight. They stand alongside their brothers who they know are trained for war and ready to go because they know the value that when we interlock our shields, this guy's shield is defending me. I want that defense. There's a statement in in special forces today, we live as a team and we die as a team. This is the mentality you need to start letting to sink into your heart when it comes to war. The body is very, very powerful. We are to move and we are to act as one. Amen? I want to take you to the book of Job. You know, when you think about spiritual warfare, I don't know how anyone could go through spiritual warfare without talking about the story of Job. And so we're going to do that uh, today. We're going to begin in Job 1.1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. Now, right off the bat, we recognize that Job, he is what? He is well trained. He is a skilled warrior of the Lord. He is armed. I'm going to tell you, Job is armed to the teeth. He is ready to go. And we know this based upon the character, Job's character, what was just expressed to us. He fears God. God and he flees evil. He loved righteousness. He surrounded himself with righteousness. It's interesting, I didn't put it up here, but every morning Job would get up and he would sacrifice to the Lord. He made intercession on behalf of his children just in case they sinned. That is a man who wakes up in the morning, puts on a shield of faith, and he goes. He is moving in faith before God. He is a warrior. I mean, he is a spiritual powerhouse. However, as we come to verse 6, we're going to discover that Job's life, it takes a dramatic change. Job is about to enter into some serious warfare where the enemy comes toe-to-toe with him. In verse 6, we read, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Now you can imagine if Job was seeing this, which he was not, you'd make you say, Lord, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? Right? Have you considered, my servant Job, that there is no one like him on the earth? Rarely do we hear such words of prestige being applied to a man. Rarely. He was none like him on the earth. This is who he was. A blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. One thing that you are going to need in war is encouragement. And you need to let this passage sink down into your heart because what struck me here, could you imagine the joy that it could bring you if the Lord spoke to you like he spoke about Job? To know that you have the ability to impress God who created heaven and earth. 
and understand something, that's nearly an impossible task. The one way I know that he is impressed after reading through Scripture after Scripture, it's faith. It's the shield of faith. And you move in faith and walk in righteousness. It brings him joy. You please the Lord. That is such a powerful concept. It makes me want to walk with him. I want to please him. I want to be able to do something no one could possibly imagine. And that is to impress the Lord. You just think about that whole concept. Well, as we go on in verse 9, So Hasatan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. You learn so much about being in relationship with the Lord. See, when you please the Lord, what does he do? He protects you. He guards you. He walks with you. He blesses you. It's powerful. You look at this and it's just awesome. This is relationship. This is what our relationship with Yeshua is supposed to look like. We're to emulate this. Moving on to verse 11. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. It is so very, very important that you pay close attention to what Satan just said to the Lord. Remember, when we read the Bible, this is a war manual. It is a training manual. The principles, the information, the secret intel that is in this book is for real life. It is to be applied. We are to take these concepts and apply them. This is a book of war. We are at war. You're going to want to take these principles, especially what we just learned here. What did Satan say to the Lord? He challenged the Lord, stretch out your hand and he will curse you. I want you to think about that. What does Satan want? We need to study our enemy. If we're at war, what do we know about our enemy? How does he move? What is the modus operandi? He wants us to curse God. That's his goal. That is his goal. Well, what is his strategy? How does he want to achieve that goal? Well, as we continue, we're going to find out in verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. In verse 13, And there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them. When the Sabians raided them and took them away, indeed they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. That's horrible. I mean, we know Job was abundantly blessed with riches, with cattle, sheep, oxen, donkeys, and so forth. And here, now, you have the Sabians raiding. And it's interesting. Again, follow this. This is war. Satan moving in the spiritual realm, and it is being manifested In the physical. Job is physically experiencing things, but they come directly from the spiritual realm. The Sabians, Satan, sent them after Job, after his um, possessions. Well, let's move on. We go into verse 16. 
While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. You look at the power of the adversary. The first time he moves in the physical, utilizing men. The second time he moves, he moves in a more of a spiritual manner, literally raining fire, what we would call an act of God, supernatural fire coming down from heaven. You start to look at his arsenal and how he comes against us. Very powerful, very powerful. So he burned up the sheep, the servants, and consumed them, and I have alone uh, have escaped to tell you. So everything was destroyed. Now we go to verse 17. While he was still speaking, this is the third guy, another came also and said, the Chaldeans, so now Satan's using man again, the Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you, going to verse 18, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. This is war. This is all-out war. Satan came against Job. He wreaked havoc on everything he possessed. Everything. Nothing was spared in Job's house. Everything went into Satan's power. And what did he do? He does what we know him to do. He brings you to desolation. He brought all his possessions to desolation. We need to understand and appreciate that we have an enemy that is going to attempt to overwhelm us through trials and tribulations. It brings him joy to inflict pain and sorrow upon us. How does Job respond? Well, verse 20. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. This is an absolutely amazing example. A total all-out war, despite the pain, despite the tribulation, Satan afflicted Job with, Job doesn't move. He doesn't move. He holds the line. He holds fast his shield of faith. He was immovable. So powerful. Job doesn't blame God. He doesn't curse God as Satan wanted him to do. In fact, Job does something unexpected that Satan could never have imagined. After he took everything from him, Job falls to his knees and worships the one true God and blesses his name. He does not sin with his mouth. Satan failed. And he failed because Job's faith. His faith did not waver. Now, getting deeper into the modus operandi of our adversary. Did Satan just give up and go home? No, he didn't give up. Actually, what we find is he comes back and presents himself before the Lord again. And the Lord says, Oh, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He once again says this. And what does Satan say? 
So Hasatan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. It's very important for you to note that Satan, despite failing to overcome Job, he continues. He finds a different angle. He is going to do this to every single one of you. You may hold the line on one particular item, but he's looking for a vulnerable spot. And he will come back and he will attack again. He's going to do everything he can to achieve the goal, to get you to blame God, to curse God. This is the goal. He wants us to abandon our Creator. And in in, in effect, what are you doing? You're giving him worship. You're giving Hasatan worship by abandoning the Lord. Going on to verse 6. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of ashes. So literally, he takes everything from Job, but now he comes after Job's health. And I've got to tell you, when you come after somebody's health, it can be debilitating, it can be crippling, it will challenge your faith. You take it to the bank. You will be challenged in your faith when you come against health issues in your life. Are you going to blame God? Or wallow in self-pity? That's certainly a lot easier for us in the flesh. But what does Job do? Well, we go on to verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. So put this all into context when you see the craftiness of our adversary. First he came out and took all his possessions that he had. And he was rich beyond measure. Took away everything. That didn't work. Now he comes and attacks his own being, his health. Attacked his health. But what's interesting is he had something up his sleeve, an ace in the hole to achieve the goal to curse God. Now he's going to take the one that is closest to Job on planet Earth, the one who is, you think of Basar Ahad, one flesh with. Satan sends his own wife to go to him to encourage him, to release the integrity, release his commitment to the Lord, and curse God. This is the move of the adversary. He is coming forth to do this. He is crafty. He is very, very cunning. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job took the shield of faith and he dispelled, just as Paul said it would, he dispelled every single attack, every angle that the adversary came at him. He dispelled it through the shield of faith. His faith was mighty. His faith was powerful. You want to survive this war, you're going to have to do, as Paul says, above all, take the shield of faith because the adversary he is going to bring trials and tribulations we are going to go through them you just better be prepared be prepared for them i mean you think about your lives right now i mean how many of you can honestly say well you're going through trials and tribulations right now how many feel that you're in the valley of the shadow of death 
Maybe you think everything that you're doing at work is all of a sudden falling apart. Maybe you're being financially attacked. You're financially suffering right now. Maybe your health is under attack. Maybe you have relationships under attack in your life. Maybe it just in general you feel like your life is crumbling right before you. How are you dealing with it? Are you armed? Do you have the weapons of the living God to move in the power of His might? Are you holding the shield of faith? Because you're going to need to, because it's going to begin this war and it's going to end the war. It's going to be through your faith. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 19, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Dropping down to 71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Think about that. When you are facing trials and tribulations, go to this verse, go to this passage and realize you are being refined. Your hands are being trained to know war. We are being trained to know war. And it is good when we are afflicted. How many of you, when something really traumatic happens in your life, you should, the response should be, present yourself to Yeshua. And all of a sudden, now all of a sudden, all the things in your life, they disappear is their value. And all that matters is, Lord God, help me. Help me. It is good when you are afflicted, when it brings you to the feet of Yeshua. Accept it. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people go through trials and tribulations, horrible things, and they come out better. Their heart is refined. All the impurities, the secret impurities, the Lord knows how to purge them out. It puts you back on the narrow path. We are not to despise the chastening of the Lord. We are not to despise the testing, the trials and the tribulations. We are to stand in faith. We are to fight. This is what we are to do. Paul says we're to glory. In, in, in Romans 5.3, not only that, but we are to glory in tribulations. Now to the world, that sounds absolutely idiotic. That we would glory in tribulations. But Paul knows something. Glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Do you know what perseverance is? It is endurance. It's faith. He who endures to the end will be saved. That is a message of faith. Your faith will take you to the end if you bear that shield of faith. It produces perseverance. And perseverance character Isn't that interesting? It's refining. It's good that I've been afflicted that I may learn your statutes because now I'm truly going to walk in righteousness. I have been humbled. I am vulnerable before the Lord. And when I am weak, then I am strong. Right? And I love love how it goes on. It builds character. And then character does what? Hope. Well, let me ask you. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. And when you see, you go through these, this process, Paul says, of trials, of tribulation, and that will produce endurance, and that endurance produces good character. And that good character will bring about hope. In other words, you began with faith, you end with faith. Right? You begin with faith, you end with faith. Because true hope is faith. 
it's realized in your heart. We do not stumble. I'm going to close today with this statement. Spurgeon, the Lord gets his best soldiers out of the highlands of affliction. How true is that? You think about that. He gets his best soldiers. This is absolutely, fundamentally a biblical concept. He will get his best soldiers out of the highlands of affliction. I read this. When I read about Joseph, when I read about Moses, when I read about David, when I read about Job, when I read about the Apostle Paul, all of them suffered great afflictions. And he got his best soldiers out of the afflictions. Think about that statement. Everyone rise. We're going to do our battle cry. Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid. Do not tremble. And do not be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God, it is He who goes with you to fight for you, to fight against your enemies, give you victory. And we all say, today we will go to war. We will not fear. We will not faint. We will not give in to the flesh. And we will not give in to our enemies. Today we will stand and we will fight. We will conquer through the might of our Lord Yeshua. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow our heads in prayer while the music team comes up. Father God, we give you praise and glory on this day. We give you praise and glory for your war manual, for your word, for your truth. We give you praise and glory for the sacrifice of your son, for the forgiveness of sins. And it is the shield of faith. The the true accurate description should be the shield of faith in your son. The shield of faith in Yeshua. And through that, we can do all things through Yeshua who strengthens us. Your word is true, Lord. It is light. It is salt. And we pray that you sow that word. Let us hide your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you but that we might walk